From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm Matt Doran, and today we return to our discussion of the upcoming Supreme Court case BLV Mahanoy Area School District. If you joined us for our previous two discussions, you'll recall BL, a high school girl, sent a message over Snapchat to 250 of her classmates that said, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. Her cheerleading coaches learned of the snap and suspended BL from cheerleading for a year. BL sued in federal court under Section 1983, saying her free speech rights were violated and that the school had no right to discipline her for speech she made on a Saturday off campus. BL won at the district and appellate court. The Supreme Court will hear oral argument on April 28th. In the first episode, we heard from school law expert Professor Kathleen Herzman, who discussed the Supreme Court's precedential cases on schools' authority to discipline student speech. The most noteworthy case is Tinker, which said students' speech is protected when it does not, or in the view of reasonable school officials, will not cause material and substantial disruption at school or invade the rights of others. In the last episode, we heard from Francisco Negron of the National School Board Association. He discussed the importance of school administrators having the authority to discipline off-campus speech that affects the campus community to protect students. On today's episode, I'm joined by Will Creeley. Will is the chief author of an amicus brief submitted to the Supreme Court in this case on behalf of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which is an organization dedicated to defending and sustaining individual rights of students and faculty members at America's colleges and universities. Will has been with FIRE since graduating from NYU Law School in 2006. He has been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and many other notable news sources. Will Creeley, welcome to The Podvocate. Hey, Matt, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about this fascinating case. Thank you so much. We're so lucky to have you, and we're, we're really glad you could make the time for us. So let's let's dive right in. Uh, question presented aside, what do you see as the main issue driving this case? What's at stake? That's an excellent question and a good place to start. For the past 20 years, uh, courts of appeals... Uh, and district courts have been wandering in a kind of jurisprudential desert trying to figure out some coherent response uh, to online, uh, off-campus student speech. Uh, They have uh, responded in a variety of ways. Some courts have decided that if the student speech has what they deem a nexus uh, to school activities, that it's properly Uh, within the ambit of uh, school authority to punish. Uh, Some uh, appellate courts have said uh, if it's reasonably foreseeable uh, that the the speech might reach school grounds, uh, that that's also properly disciplined uh, by school authorities. And some circuit courts like the the Fifth Circuit have kind of punted and said uh, almost, I know it when I see it, you know, if if it it, uh, is, is... uh, substantially disruptive in a way that we think meets Tinker, uh, we're going to go ahead and apply Tinker. Uh, and that's kind of an ad hoc way of doing it. So finally, the Supreme Court uh, has uh, granted cert and agreed to 
uh, shed some light on this question. Uh, Fire, my organization, is writing in uh, support of uh, respondent BL. Uh, We think that the Third Circuit's decision uh, gets the mark exactly right. I will say from our perspective, uh, we work in higher education. Our interest here uh, is twofold. First of all, uh, student speech decisions uh, that originate in high school and involve K-12 speech uh, often uh, are misapplied to restrict the rights of uh, public college students, which are on a substantially different footing. There's no more consideration of uh, whether or not uh, the school authorities are acting in loco parentis. Uh, adult college speech, uh, adult college student speech is, is materially different and the Supreme Court and lower courts have recognized that. But nevertheless, we often see those K-12 decisions uh, flow downstream or upstream, however you want, <laughs> want to play it, uh, to restrict uh, the speech of public college students. So that's one issue. The other question for us is that students who are educated uh, in a particular cramped vision of expressive rights in the K-12 context will uh, not uh, be aware of the full extent of their rights when they get to college. That is, if you've been told and you've been uh, disciplined and you've come to expect that your rights uh, are limited uh, in a particular way in the K-12 context, uh, by the time you get to college, you won't uh, notice or care. uh, Well, you might care, but you won't notice uh, or, or be, feel equipped to object when your rights are similarly limited uh, as an adult. We are educating students uh, in political uh, and social citizenship uh, in K-12, as some of the classic school speech cases uh, note ex- you know, explicitly. Uh, and if we teach students that their rights are more limited than they should be, uh, students will reproduce uh, that knowledge later on and will have a similarly restricted understanding of what their First Amendment rights are. So that's, that's kind of our interest here. Um, the court uh, has an opportunity here to shed uh, much-needed light uh, on uh, the proper applicability of Tinker uh, and also uh, to uh, remind uh, school administrators and lower courts of the animating concern for student speech rights uh, that was uh, first announced in, in Tinker and has been eroded uh, in, in unfortunate ways since. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, Tinker because they're, they're... – I, I'm concerned that there is a disconnect between the court's rationale that supported Tinker and its facts and that applicability to BL's case. So the Tinker court said without a specific showing of constitutionally valid reasons to regulate their speech, students are entitled to freedom of expression and cannot be punished for expressions of feelings with which school officials do not wish to contend. And as I mentioned, that was... Uh, that was more aligned with First Amendment issues. The Tinker Court was responding to political protest to the Vietnam War. And that protest speech is you know, much more aligned with fir- what the First Amendment was designed to protect. protect. Texting F school and F cheer, that's not protest speech. That's just a high school or venting, which everybody does. Isn't that the kind of speech that the Fraser Court said was vulgar and part of a school's duty to discipline in order to promote civility? in our nation's youth? I've got a number of points in response, Matt, but let me start, first of all, uh, by by gently chatting you for your cramped understanding of what the First Amendment was, quote-unquote, designed to protect or how such a rule about, quote-unquote, just venting might be misapplied. Uh, In the amicus brief that Fire filed, 
uh, we include a number of examples. Uh, we really had no shortage of examples of school officials uh, reaching into students' private lives to punish speech uh, that they found objectionable. And it's not that they uh, limited their punishments to, quote unquote, only uh, students who were uh, spouting off or, or expressing, expressing their frustration with, with high school. Uh, they also punished students who uh, expressed support for Black Lives Matter or uh, candidate or President Donald Trump or criticized teachers uh, for being racist or took uh, pictures of dirty school water at school. That is, they expressed their opinions about a wide variety of issues. Any one of those uh, expressions could have been uh, characterized and probably were by school administrators as uh, just students venting uh, and, and you know, thus legitimately punishable. But it puts too much of an onus on students to, you know, and also chills their speech uh, if the rule were to be only, quote unquote, legitimate First Amendment activity, only political speech. Uh, would be uh, beyond the reach of school authorities. That is, school authorities can punish anything uh, as long as it's not something on a matter of public concern. You know, as, as I think it's important to remember, when you're in high school, uh, most of your conscious hours are spent either in school or interfacing with others in school. Uh, if you can't talk about school, uh, particularly when you're off campus, uh, you are not in school anymore. You're in a panopticon. You are in uh, you know, an, uh, an, an all uh, high security, uh, you know, uh, prison kind of, you, re you really can't find the space to express yourself. And that was one of the heartbreaking things, reading all these local news stories about students who've been punished for uh, protected speech off campus that they, they posted online. There's a student who um, made a joke with a friend uh, about their legally owned uh, and, and registered firearms uh, over the weekend, sent a joke to friends saying, hey, if there's a zombie apocalypse, you know where to come. Uh, and and put, posted a picture of their firearms, uh, again, just to their friends, and they're punished for this. And the student said in speaking of the paper, you know, it really feels as if there's no way I could be, if I can't talk to friends, if I can't tell a joke to friends on a Saturday night at my house uh, without getting in trouble on, on Monday morning, uh, then there's nowhere I can speak. So that's number one, right? And then that tees up the, num the most maybe second important part here is that Fraser uh, is specifically discussing uh, quote unquote vulgar speech in the context of an in school activity, right? Fraser is not an all purpose rule for school authority over uh, quote unquote vulgar speech wherever the student might be. Uh, Fraser involves uh, a, a school assembly uh, when the interest uh, a school has in maintaining order. Uh, and uh, allowing school students to uh, be inculcated in the values of civility and decency, or, or to use some of that flowery language uh, from Fraser, uh, is at its highest, right? Fraser uh, deals with in-school speech, and that's where the authority, uh, both under Tinker and that line of school speech cases, come from. Uh, it's the in loco parentis aspect uh, of school authority, where they're acting in place of parents and thus have supervisory authority uh, to facilitate their educational mission. It does not give them uh, uh, carte blanche uh, to regulate student expression uh, that they don't like wherever they may be. And the student expression does not have to be uh, political or otherwise uh, acceptable to warrant First Amendment protection. When it's off campus and the student's on their own time, uh, they are free to speak their mind, uh, subject only to uh, the punishment of speech that's not protected uh, by the First Amendment in the same way as all other adults are. Well, I think that I think that in the abstract, that all seems perfectly reasonable. I suspect, though, that 
if you're a school administrator or a teacher or a coach that, and, and let's say you're a veteran school administrator, teacher, coach, you're thinking, yeah, that might've been the case 25 years ago, but now the internet and social media have so blurred the lines that there really is no more border or to borrow uh, Tinker's phrase, the schoolhouse gate, schoolhouse gate could be anywhere. Uh, and for a school administrator, teacher, coach to say we can only do things that happen on school grounds or in, in loco parentis, the in loco parentis from a school's perspective, if the school's perspective is to educate and to instill values and from a from an online and a social media perspective is borderless. Would you agree with that? Uh, no, I wouldn't. What I what I would argue is that, and this is what the Third Circuit uh, ruling uh, makes clear, is that you still are uh, subject to punishment for speech not protected by the First Amendment when you're off school grounds. What the Third Circuit ruled is that Tinker does not supply the framework for regulating off-campus student expression, uh, whether that's posted online or whether it's a student uh, talking to other students uh, on a Saturday night. Uh, the, the, the Tinker uh, rule uh, is a very <laughs> suspect rule when you take it out of the special characteristics of the school environment. It's a bar on speech that invades the rights of others. Uh, it's a bar on speech that uh, either causes or reasonably foreseeable to cause uh, material and substantial disruption. Those are broad uh, grants of uh, speech regulatory authority uh, to uh, public officials, school administrators. Uh, if the issue is that uh, speech that was off campus is now newly visible uh, because of uh, technological advances, uh, then surely the rule can't be uh, to expand the extreme speech restrictive uh, uh, provisions that were granted in Tinker only because they were limited to the school environments. That's why the schoolhouse gate line is in there. It's, it's an on-off switch for school authority. Uh, if, if the technological advance uh, and the deterioration or the, the, the now metaphysical nature of the schoolhouse gate uh, needs to be contended with. Uh, the answer is not to export uh, Tinker, a very speech-restrictive rule, uh, to all aspects of a student's uh, offline life. I mean, again, that, that kind of, I think, gets the order exactly backwards, uh, far better than to craft a rule uh, or to reserve the question, in this case, as the Third Circuit did in its holding, uh, that allows uh, students to express themselves off campus uh, in the way that Tinker envisioned, in the way that uh, I think, frankly, an education in our democratic society requires, uh, but grant schools the authority to punish speech that is not protected off campus in the same way. Schools can still regulate uh, harassment. In fact, they're required by federal anti-discrimination law to do so. Uh, they can still address uh, instances of uh, threatening speech. Uh, there are a variety of First Amendment exceptions, and each of those uh, can still be punishable by the school. Uh, likewise, uh, I think that it's 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 uh, uh, incorrect to say that that schools just simply have to uh, ignore what happens uh, beyond the school gate. But the the idea that uh, students now, by virtue of technology, are uh, wards of the school authorities at all hours. That That's just incompatible with, uh, I think, any functional understanding of what it means to possess civil liberties uh, in in, uh, in the United States in a meaningful way. I just think that that's, 
that would really uh, mean that students were uh, monitored uh, subjects of discipline at all hours in ways that um, would be very detrimental to our uh, understanding of our rights and our relationship with government power. Okay, and and again, I I, I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable uh, justification, and 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 takes um, appropriate recognition of the history of the First Amendment and its relationship to schools and individual rights, and even those that apply to uh, minor students. Um, but I think as soon as you start to consider facts of individual cases, the lines start to the, the, the discussion starts to get a little muddier. So let, let's talk about um, our particular case. So BL conceded that her snap would undermine team morale and chemistry, things that are critical in a team sport context where teammates rely on each other for emotional support, cheerleaders, uh, and that that particular sport even requires actual physical support of each other in those pyramid formations that they do. Um, I think the other cheerleaders knowledge of the coaches awareness is critical. You know, they knew that the coaches were aware of BL snap. And, and I think that knowledge is the linchpin. If the cheerleaders saw the coaches take no action against BL who admitted that her snap would undermine morale, doesn't that, that lack of action against BL in turn undermine the coach's authority and their ability to build and maintain team unity and promote sportsmanship. Well, I want to I want to push back on that just a little bit, just on the record. Uh, the the court of appeals does uh, summarize it uh, in that way. The court of appeals uh, says that uh, BL does not dispute that her speech would undermine team morale and chemistry. Uh, I should note that that BL. Uh, uh, does dispute that character characterization uh, in the filing uh, with the court um, uh, in response to petitioners, uh, BL uh, and her attorneys uh, push back substantially on this. They they say that uh, BL did not dispute uh, that the coach, uh, one of the coaches of the cheer team, uh, personally believed that the uh, the quote unquote negative information communicated electronically had to be addressed. Uh, to avoid chaos and maintain a team-like uh, environment, but did not say that she agreed with that belief. Uh, in fact, the uh, coaches of the cheer team said that uh, electronic uh, sniping or squabbling was common with the cheer team and admitted that, uh, the, one of the coaches uh, admitted that the BL uh, testified that BL was punished for profanely referencing cheerleading, uh, not because of any possibility of disruption. So just, just to push back a little bit on that, like the idea that uh, cheerleaders haven't been uh, griping about each other and the cheer team just as they would in any other extracurricular activity. I'm not saying that that's uh, a particular characteristic of, of cheer squads. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to push back there uh, just, just to make that clear. Uh, the question was not of, of disruption uh, for the... Uh, for the school district in either uh, the district court stage or the appellate stage, what, the, what they were pushing was that they had a right to punish vulgar speech under Fraser. So just that, that's important to keep in mind. Uh, here uh, the, the, at, at the uh, merit stage now and, and at the cert stage, the school district is now arguing uh, that there, there should be a, uh, uh, an application of Tinker and that it was disruptive in that way. But that was not the school district's focus before. But putting aside the instant record, uh, what about morale and chemistry, especially when, uh, as you know, you know, cheerleaders are 
relying on each other to land safely and to be thrown up in the air and do all those amazing things uh, that cheer teams do. Same in in, uh, football or any other kind of organized activity in that way. Requiring perfect morale and discipline uh, is not uh, realistic and it's not likely. Uh, If there are um, punishments to be meted out, uh, they need to be done. So, you know, in, in the context of a school uh, extracurricular environment, you can't condition uh, participation in extracurricular uh, environments in this way on what students might may say uh, off campus. And that, I think that that's, that's uh, relatively well settled, uh, that you cannot have uh, conditioning of the enjoyment of a, a government benefit uh, or uh, here in this instance, uh, part of the educational experience uh, that requires you to give up or forsake or waive first amendment rights outside. You know, that, that's kind of old, uh, Russ v. Sullivan. You can't impose conditions, uh, that prevent you from getting, um, prevent you from exercising rights outside of the, uh, of that context. So that's, uh, that's, that's my concern here. If, if you have BL saying what she said on the snap, uh, not, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, uh, to her private friends, knowing that the snap is going to disappear into the ether 24 hours later, but instead during a routine in front of people wearing the uniform, then perhaps we have a different case here. But that's not what we have. Uh, we have the facts as they are, uh, in which you have a school uh, cheerleading coach uh, being told of the snap by her daughter uh, and then seeking to punish BL. Uh, without a showing of disruption. And that, that makes me very nervous. That's a broad grant of authority uh, to punish students for off-campus speech that uh, uh, happens when they're not wearing the uniform, when they're not at practice, and so forth. So that, uh, that kind of broad rule kind of demonstrates uh, the danger here. You know, it's, if, if, one, if one thinks, hey, if she's bad-mouthing the team, surely this can be disciplined. That's, that's maybe an application in this instance but the broader rule that's being advanced by petitioners here uh, that Tinker should apply uh, beyond school grounds uh, to off-campus speech more generally uh, if it's foreseeable that it reaches other students. I mean, that's no rule at all. That just means that all off-campus student speech uh, or online student speech is suddenly fair game for monitoring and punishment. And that should scare anybody uh, who's concerned about the First Amendment or uh, believes that students have a right to uh, exercise First Amendment rights, which the court certainly didn't tinker, uh, and we hope it does again here. Okay, I'm I'm glad you brought up the the distinction between you know an extracurricular activity because uh, that's something I, I wanted to touch on. You know, there's a difference between losing a privilege to participate in an extracurricular activity such as cheerleading, and then being denied access to the classroom via a suspension or an expulsion. Don't you think that schools should have the flexibility to discipline based on the underlying activity? You know, if if someone is walking the halls of a school wearing, you know, and let's update the context to the 21st century. Let's say it's 2018 and a, a student is wearing a shirt that says F. And I do mean just the letter F, uh, F Trump, let's just say. Uh, and that's pro and that's considered protest speech. And it, you know, because it lacks the, the subsequent letters to complete the verb, uh, it's debatable as to whether or not it's truly vulgar. Um, and that would be, and that's, and again, that's walking the halls during class hours. 
versus uh, doing something that has some kind of relationship with an extracurricular activity. And then there's a difference between suspension and expulsion and being denied access to the classroom for a shirt versus being suspended for the season or X number of games or participating in the extracurricular in some way as a result of this activity that or, or conduct rather that had some kind of nexus to the uh, extracurricular. Don't you think schools should be able to differentiate based on the right to access to the classroom versus the privilege of participation in an extracurricular? Well, one of the issues that fire weighed in on at the third circuit level was was whether this was kind of a, a privilege or whether this is part of the educational program. Uh, and we found a, a number of interesting uh, uh, Pennsylvania and third circuit uh, rulings regarding that. And, and the basic idea is that putting a uh, condition on participation that requires you to uh, waive uh, first amendment rights and whether the rights be generally applicable uh, is suspect. And that's a problem. Uh, I do think that if you are going to uh, tailor a, a rule, uh, you could imagine a narrowly tailored rule uh, that would impact uh, students who are participating in extracurricular activity uh, that would limit their uh, discipline to the context of that extracurricular activity uh, and would be responsive to their speech while participating in that extracurricular activity. If you're the high school quarterback and you tell the coach to go to hell uh, and the coach sits you for three games, do you have a First Amendment case? No, you don't have a First Amendment case. If you are the high school quarterback and you uh, tell the student paper, um, you know, the coach uh, is, is a jerk, do you have a, a First Amendment right? Well, it gets a little closer. And then if you're the high school quarterback and you are uh, not playing in the game and you're, you know, again at home and you post on your Snapchat F football, uh, then I think the school's authority is probably at the least. You know, the student at one point, whether it's a student cheerleader, student athlete, student band member, whatever, uh, it still has to be a student first. And the school authority uh, still has to be uh, weighted by the fact that they're a government actor and that censorship is a very blunt tool. Punishing student speech uh, particularly off-campus student speech, which, which is what's at issue here, uh, has to be uh, subject only to the First Amendment considerations uh, and exceptions that the court has found elsewhere. You don't have, um, I think, a, a, a broad regulatory interest in regulating uh, student speech, a broad government interest in regulating student speech that happens when students uh, are no longer wearing uh, the uniform uh, no longer carrying the backpack to the schoolhouse gates and so forth. I just, I'm, I'm very wary of that uh, because to, to re- revisit your point earlier, theoretically, it sounds okay. But then you see the application of this. And we know that schools are already punishing students uh, under uh, uh, rationales that have very little to do with Tinker, if anything, where no substantial disruption has been shown, really just to avoid uh, what Tinker characterizes as the expression of an uncomfortable opinion. So if that rule is already being abused, granting further authority here, or even the appearance of it from the high court, uh, is going to wreak havoc on student expressive rights and essentially turn them into a dead letter. That's my, my real fear here, is that because this speech is unsympathetic and because uh, the justices and their clerks and, and the general public might think, yeah, you don't have a right to tell your cheerleader coach to, to you know, um, 
uh, f <laughs> f off <laughs> to use the euphemism uh, that that that's going to uh, effectively green light in the minds of administrators of veteran administrators everywhere that uh, you can reach into students' lives and the Supreme Court has said it's basically okay I think it's going to be open season on uh, on student speech rights and that's a, that's that's my real fear here and, and I think that those are are, are founded fears I, I suspect. And I think also having spoken with uh, Francisco Negron of the National School Board Association that the fear on the other side of that spectrum is the ability of schools to maintain a sense of authority and discipline is going to be wholly undermined if there's this bright line of, well, it was uh, online and off campus, therefore we can't touch it, when everybody knows that online off-campus speech daily crosses that schoolhouse gate threshold. Um, I'd like to discuss more um, potential extreme circumstances of how speech could affect. Um, you know, if the Supreme Court upholds the Third Circuit's decision and restricts school's authority to discipline student speech only if it occurred in that uh, context where it's owned, controlled, or sponsored by the school, how can that rule be squared with the state laws that require schools to act in response to cyberbullying? You touched on that, that there is a federal anti-harassment law, but can you talk more about that? And if that is the right exception, um, because I know, so New Jersey is in the third circuit where this uh, case originated and they have, um, they have a law requiring schools to act uh, to address online harassment and cyberbullying when it occurs um, uh, among and between students. Right. And I should note, that's a great question, Matt. I should note right away that uh, uh, New Jersey's uh, anti-bullying bill of rights uh, has been a matter of uh, First Amendment concern since it was enacted. Um, uh, Fire, uh, First Amendment advocates, uh, ACLU of New Jersey all expressed concern about uh, how uh, those state anti-bullying uh, requirements might, might impact student speech. So I just want to note that at the top. Uh, second of all, uh, the again, the characterization of the Third Circuit's ruling as, as saying that you know schools now have to ignore or, or not pay attention to to uh, school speech off campus is, is in, incorrect. What the Third Circuit says uh, is that Tinker is not the framework for analyzing off campus speech and reserving the question about uh, harassing speech or, or speech that threatens violence. So I think in those harder instances, uh, schools retain the authority. Uh, to regulate speech that, that is either uh, unprotected per the First Amendment or uh, conduct uh, that is uh, governed by uh, federal anti-discrimination law or state anti-bullying laws, as long as those laws are themselves uh, in accordance with First Amendment precedent and principles. So, for example, uh, thinking about uh, harassment under Title VI or Title IX, uh, federal anti-discrimination laws barring, uh, in the case of Title VI, discrimination on the basis of uh, race, color, uh, national origin, or Title IX, uh, gender, uh, gender uh, identity, um, on the basis of sex, but has been interpreted by courts to understand um, uh, conformance with gender stereotypes and, and, and gender identity. The, in that instance, uh, schools are liable for failing to respond to speech or conduct that is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive uh, that it interferes with the uh, ability of a student to uh, partake in an educational opportunity or benefit. 
And it, I think that schools under the Third Circuit's decision, if the, fir- if the Supreme Court simply affirms, uh, schools can still regulate that speech. Uh, this, that definition that I, I just listed comes from the Supreme Court uh, and itself uh, is the product of a, a long discussion about what the First Amendment permits uh, when the, you have the twin government uh, requirements of uh, honoring First Amendment rights and addressing uh, discriminatory harassment. So schools are already on the hook, I guess is my, my, my bottom line here. Schools are already on the hook uh, for navigating between uh, state and federal laws uh, that uh, implicate in some instances speech um, integral to, a, to conduct uh, and the First Amendment. They already have to do this. It's not, it's not as if the New Jersey anti-bullying statute uh, supersedes the First Amendment. You know, if 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 schools are abusing uh, the New Jersey anti-bullying statute to punish uh, First Amendment protected activity off campus, that's already a problem. Nothing uh, that the Supreme Court does in this case is is going to change that, no matter which way it goes. Uh, I should note just on that point uh, that in fact, uh, as Fire's amicus brief demonstrates, uh, <laughs> there have been uh, instances where. Students have been uh, hauled into the principal's office and threatened with discipline uh, in the state of New Jersey for speech that is plainly protected uh, by the First Amendment posted off campus, tweets posted off campus uh, over winter break, uh, criticizing the state of Israel uh, and have been brought in and said, do you know that that could be problematic? Do you know that that could could get you in trouble? What you say online uh, could be a problem for you. So some of our concerns in this instance have been borne out. the bottom line is that schools can regulate cyberbullying uh, and regulate discriminatory harassment uh, in a way that's consistent with the First Amendment. Uh, what they can't do is use uh, Tinker off cam- to regulate off-campus speech as kind of a catch-all, uh, as kind of a, uh, hey, we reasonably foresee sub- substantial disruption from what you said off-campus. Uh, therefore, it's within our ambit and on uh, our jurisdiction, we'll be able to punish you. Uh, and I think that 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 those are, that's fair. I think that's I think those are valid concerns. I suspect from a school administrator's perspective, they're looking for more of a bright line rule, something that they can cling harder and faster to, rather than more factually amorphous or an, an amorphous rule that is uh, very fact specific. So I'll I'll re uh, I'd like to. Uh, read a passage from the school district's petition for cert. They wrote, students regularly challenge schools' disciplinary measures for off-campus speech in federal and state court, with the rise of the internet leading to an explosion of cases involving off-campus student speech. Just in the past year, schools have been sued after disciplining disciplining students for off-campus messages to, one, black classmates with the phrases, white power and the South will rise again, two, featuring several friends with the caption, me and the boys about to exterminate the Jews, and three featuring photos of guns immediately after the Parkland shooting, mirroring language and images that the Parkland shooter had employed. And these students uh, were disciplined for these acts by their school. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, or I'm concerned rather, that the school administrators in those cases are, you know, are, are being put in a position where they might not necessarily uh, be qualified to make that determination as to whether or not this is protected speech or it isn't. And by the time that they 
were to maybe consult with a First Amendment attorney, a school discipline expert that, you know, a number of other problems have arisen. Students uh, who felt threatened have acted in some kind of way. When I spoke with uh, Professor Kathleen Herzman, she, and uh, who has spent many years uh, in this arena, has said, I would always rather defend uh, a school administrator or a school in some capacity for restricting free speech rights rather than defend them in a wrongful death suit. And so my question is, do you believe the schools uh, should be prohibited from speech like this if it occurs off campus? Uh, and how should they respond? If you do, you know, how should they respond in those kinds of situations? Yeah, that's a, a it's a great and, and important question. I, I think that Professor Hertzman is exactly right. And I will say that her, uh, uh, exactly right insofar as her description matches the practice. Uh, as somebody who has been defending student first amendment rights for 15 years now, I uh, can say unequivocally that schools will always choose to censor the speech uh, when it's uh, borderline or, or even uh, when, when, it's, when it's fairly clearly protected uh, rather than uh, risk uh, a discrimination lawsuit. The, uh, the chances of uh, prevailing in the First Amendment lawsuit are substantially higher. Uh, students oftentimes don't uh, stand up for their First Amendment rights, even if it is plainly protected. I, and I'll get to those three examples in a second. Uh, and uh, schools would, would much rather err on the side of punishing alleged harassment than standing up for uh, First Amendment rights. Uh, and that, that's just a fact. And so Professor Hurstman's uh, assessment uh, is, in fact, industry, <laughs> quote unquote, industry wide practice. Um, so to those three examples, so if a student uh, sent a picture uh, with the phrase white power in the South will rise again to black classmates and there's unwanted targeted speech. We're talking again about Title VI. And that, that uh, brings us back to the previous answers. Nothing in the Third Circuit's opinion uh, precludes uh, schools from uh, taking action against speech uh, that constitutes discriminatory harassment. I don't think a school would need to uh, consult with a First Amendment attorney before taking action there. Uh, I think that uh, if it is uh, clearly targeted at other students on the basis of race uh, and unwanted, and the students complain about it, then I think you're you're you know off to the races. I think that you you at that point got yourself a prima facie case of discriminatory harassment. Uh, if you say me and the boy is about to exterminate the Jews, and that one's a little bit trickier. Insofar as uh, I'm not sure it's targeted. I'm not sure it's um, it's. Uh, uh, not uh, a, a uh, uh, some kind of, of uh, joke. We see quite a bit of uh, speech in terms of, uh, again, really kind of classic offensive juvenile speech that is nevertheless uh, protected. Um, so I, I'd have to know more about that uh, on that one. And then featuring photos of guns immediately after the Parkland shooting, mirroring language and images that the Parkland shooter had employed. That would also be a factual determination, but as the Third Circuit properly does, it reserves the question of what to do with threatening off-campus speech, and true threats are not protected by the First Amendment. So I, again, think that in this instance, the school could properly take action. Uh, I don't think that schools are handcuffed to respond to off-campus speech, and I don't think the Third Circuit's ruling uh, handcuffs them. It's, again, within their authority to punish um, discriminatory harassment uh, or true threats, and that, that was the case prior uh, to the Third Circuit's ruling and will be the case after 
presumably the, the Supreme Court's ruling. The instance of school administrators having to make a decision uh, on, a, on a split second post uh, and choosing to um, hold back uh, rather than risk the First Amendment lawsuit, I just don't think that that describes reality. Uh, what we are asking uh, the court to do is not to extend uh, Tinker, which, uh, as the uh, attorneys for BL describe it, is a very blunt instrument uh, to off campus because that sweeps in not just these uh, examples, which are either borderline uh, or uh, clear instances where uh, the school might might take action or investigate, but to sweep in all off campus speech, including uh, students just venting, uh, as as BL was here. That's where we have a real problem. Do you think, and, and, and I understand that the Third Circuit reserved and, and didn't uh, directly address the harassment, bullying uh, potential context, um, because that wasn't necessarily an issue here in BL's case, uh, but that's certainly a concern for school administrators and part of... Uh, the reason that this uh, is likely to be in the Supreme Court is because school districts want to have, uh, you know, be able to have a uniform rule that they can look to. Do you think the Supreme Court is going to address the bullying and harassment uh, issue, even though it's not necessarily present in these particular factual circumstances because uh, schools are looking for it? Yeah, I think that, look, all, I think all government actors, the school administrators are not unique. All government actors who deal with uh, speech would rather have a bright line rule. And of course, I think they'd rather have a bright line rule that just gave them basically unfettered authority to police and monitor student speech or, or the speech at issue in their field. So school administrators are not uh, in, a, in a different class here. In fact, school administrators already have much broader authority to regulate uh, student expression than, than many government actors do over, over the folks that they, the citizens that they uh, interact with or regulate in some way. So the bright line rule, you know, I, I'm sympathetic, but the same, by the same token, uh, the First Amendment is not um, uh, negotiable uh, for government actors. And second of all, uh, Tinker uh, has been the law of the land for 50 years. Uh, and while it is, I would argue, a bright line rule as to whether or not it applies off campus, I think it's clearly a bright line rule uh, that it does not. Uh, but Tinker itself requires judgment calls as to whether or not uh, disruption has occurred or is substantially or reasonably likely, or sorry, reasonably likely to occur. So, you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic to a point uh, to school administrators, but uh, the First Amendment requires uh, context and, and thinking and consideration. So that's frankly just just how it is. Oh, as to what the court will do here, that's a great question. I'm, you know, I was somewhat surprised that the court granted cert. Uh, in the first place, uh, disappointed, frankly, because I, I did like the clarity of the Third Circuit's ruling, uh, because First Amendment advocates want clarity just as much as uh, school administrators. Um, I think that the court, uh, if it's interested in judicial efficiency, if it doesn't want to see the next case come down, you know, three, four or five years later, uh, if it is interested in providing clarity to uh, the lower courts, which I, which I really urge it to, I think it should uh, properly rule uh, that uh, speech that happens off campus is subject to the same First Amendment exceptions generally. Uh, it's worth noting that that's kind of a, a point of some difference uh, amongst uh, First Amendment advocates. Uh, BL's uh, attorneys, uh, the ACLU of Pennsylvania and the National ACLU, they argue that in the alternative, if the court uh, does extend tinker 
that uh, there should be a heightened intent requirement, uh, that the school should uh, show that not only uh, did the student direct the speech to campus, uh, that they should be showed that the student uh, intended to disrupt campus, as I understand it. Uh, which is an interesting additional requirement. So speech, like, for example, let's say a student takes a picture of guns and tags campus after Parkland and says, you know, you're next or whatever. At that point, I mean, I would argue that you already are are um, uh, are free to take action under a true threats uh, rationale. But speech that is sent by the student with the intent of disrupting school, uh, the ACLU argues, should uh, potentially be a fallback for the court if the court does uh, grant school administrators great authority or extend Tinker off campus. Uh, but I should note, too, that the ACLU cautions uh, that substantial disruption uh, should also have to be uh, heightened, right? So not only would, should schools have to demonstrate that the speaker, the student speaker, intended to disrupt uh, school with this off-campus post, uh, but also that the substantial disruption test uh, be uh, uh, heightened as well, uh, that it's not enough uh, just to say, you know, uh, the, the, the cheer team, which was out of season at this point, by the way, when, when Beale spoke, um, was concerned. You know, it has to be something like students stayed home from school or et cetera. You know, it has to be substantial disruption. One thing that we've seen in some of the, um, the uh, pellet cases uh, over the past 15 years are, uh, I think, uh, schools really um, expanding the definition of what constitutes substantial disruption under Tinker uh, in a in a fairly distorted way. There's a Second Circuit case, Doniger v. Niehoff, uh, where the school characterizes uh, a couple of administrators missing meetings because they were answering phone calls and emails as substantial disruption. I, I don't think, uh, you know, receiving calls and emails from students who are upset that uh, administrators canceled uh, a student concert is sufficient to constitute substantial disruption. So I, I, I understand the ACLU's point. They, they would like, uh, if, the, if the speech, off-campus speech is to be uh, now newly uh, governed under Tinker, uh, then it should be uh, a particularly uh, intentionally disruptive kind of speech that actually uh, would result in that kind of disruption. So that's, that's something to think about. We'll see what the court does. Uh, I'm, I'm a lousy, uh, prognosticator, so I don't want to go too much farther than that, but, uh, it will be interesting. I think if the court, um, having granted cert here, it's in the court's interest and frankly, in the interest of both students and administrators, uh, to, uh, provide folks with as much clarity as possible, no matter which direction they go in. Well, I'll, I'll, I won't hold you to any of your self-described lousy prognostications, although I'm, I am curious, you know, you've, you've written a number of uh, amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, to uh, uh, various districts and appellate courts. I'm curious to get your perspective with the new makeup of the court. Uh, you've got Justice Kavanaugh has, I believe, a... Um, parochial school age ch- uh, child. I believe he's got a daughter in high school. Um, Justice Barrett has, I believe, a number of children who are still uh, in the scholastic system. You know, when I was speaking with Professor Herzman, she was saying that when I believe it was Morse was in 2008, and that was a very different makeup of the court uh, with a pretty heavy majority of older justices who uh, from her perspective, were just too unfamiliar with the technology to truly uh, grasp the realities that were present in the situation. 
And it may be quite different now with Justice uh, Kavanaugh, uh, Justice Barrett, Justice Gorsuch, uh, some of these younger justices with school-aged children who have uh, perhaps a more realistic sense of the implications of this kind of case. Do you think that their voices will um, be a bit louder in this instance? That is a fascinating question. Uh, this is this is a, uh, an area of rife speculation. I will say uh, internally in our office, uh, not only the justices themselves, but also clerks. I wonder how many of these Supreme Court uh, clerks right now have Snapchat accounts, or perhaps uh, had a MySpace page, or a Facebook page, or a Twitter account in high school, uh, depending on on you know how how old they are. They're vintage. <laughs> um, I will say that when we first started taking uh, Facebook cases, uh, just when I joined Fire back in 2006, we had to describe it as popular social network site, facebook.com. And even then with that appellation, people were not necessarily familiar with Facebook. At that point, I think it was still, you still had to have a .edu address to sign up. And uh, Morse comes out uh, just around that, that time. Now, uh, when, uh, according to the Pew Research Center, uh, in the, uh, research that I cite in the brief, uh, 72% of Americans, as of 2019, presumably this number has gone up, 72% of Americans have a social media account uh, and, and interact on social media. So the familiar with social media is certainly greater, and that might impact uh, the considerations. And then, just as you say, uh, with justices having school-aged children, uh, that may also impact the consideration here. Uh, my worry is that this kind of uh, the, the speech at issue here will be sufficiently uh, unsympathetic to the justices that they will say, uh, you know what, th- this is this this should not be protected. This is not uh, the hill that First Amendment advocates want to die on. You know, I don't see any harm with allowing punishments for extracurricular activities. If you sign up to be a cheerleader, you sign up to wear the uniform no matter where you are, et cetera, et cetera. I can see that opinion in my mind. What I'm hopeful for, however is that uh, justices, particularly uh, justices uh, who have um, uh, maybe elements of social conservatism in their viewpoints, might be swayed by the argument that allowing school administrators to determine what students may or may not say off campus uh, robs the parent of their authority to discipline the child uh, by themselves. There's an interesting brief uh, from the uh, conservative advocacy group uh, ACLJ, and I'm going to blank on what the acronym stands for. Uh, I think the L and the J are liberty and justice, but I'm not quite sure. But they file an interesting brief, uh, as I recall, in support of neither party, saying that what should have happened here, their argument is basically this case should never have been brought Uh, What should have happened here is that the parents should have disciplined their child. The school district has no authority to discipline the child because it happens off school grounds. Uh, And if the school district starts disciplining children for things that happen off school grounds, next thing you know, it'll be religious speech that gets disciplined. It'll be social conservative speech that the school district doesn't like getting disciplined. And that school districts will essentially use this uh, to impart or further ideological goals that will be inconsistent with the parental authority over their own child. So that's an interesting uh, argument right there. This idea of parens patriae that uh, uh, the parents have the authority to Uh, determine uh, certain punishments and certain off-campus speech parameters for their own child. That could get some uh, traction amongst conservative justices. We shall see. Uh, I will say that uh, now that I've got a a kindergartner, my first child in public school, 
uh, it does uh, indicate uh, some interesting angles. You know, I, I never like to tell our legal interns this, but so much of the law, I think, uh, is uh, <laughs> is how a judge or justice uh, sees the in- in issue individually, right? And uh, your question is a good one. We shall see if it impacts the court. I will also note that Justice Alito has been uh, uh, quite sensitive to uh, school speech issues throughout his career, both uh, as a jurist on the Third Circuit uh, and then um, in his concurrence in, in Morris. So it'll be, be interesting to see uh, where he falls down here. I'll be looking particularly to him. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I read his concurrence in Morris, and he was very... Um very circumscribed in his language. He, he wanted to make, he, he, because I believe it was the Bush administration at the time filed, uh, I don't remember, yeah, the Bush administration filed a brief ta- um, asking for quite a bit of latitude uh, in issuing some kind of Department of Education uh, holding that a ruling that could really broaden schools' uh, scope to discipline and, and uh, he was quite clear, like this strictly applies to promoting illegal activity in that case, drugs like that. And it goes no step further. Um, so he was very concerned. I know Justice uh, Thomas really wanted it just kind of tossed and I, it wasn't qualified immunity or maybe it was qualified immunity, but he'd think it, it didn't even belong there in the first place. Um, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts has described himself as the staunchest defender of the First Amendment on the court right now. Uh, although that was, I think, I think that was a couple of justices back, um, but nonetheless uh, still probably considers himself uh, in that position um, and is potentially considered to be, you know, the uh, scion to uh, justice, former Justice uh, Kennedy's swing vote position. And so it'll, I, I think that it will be interesting. And I appreciate your uh, sharing on how you know, it's largely informed by personal perspectives um, rather than necessarily some uh, noble and lofty interpretation of the law. I, I wish that it wasn't so. And I always, I always am at war with myself as to whether or not I should reveal my, my increasingly dark cynicism about uh, judicial uh, machinations to our, our young and impressionable uh, legal interns. But I think they can handle it. And I, I don't want to be, you know... St- I don't want to be just purely um, pessimistic. I, I will say that sometimes as a First Amendment advocate, I've come to think there are three different types of cases. There are cases where uh, the speech is clearly protected. There are cases where the speech is clearly unprotected. And what you really sometimes don't want is a case that's in the middle uh, where arguments can be made both ways. Uh, sometimes it's better if the speech is extremely offensive, as in the Snyder v. Phelps case, thinking of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. That case, the speech uh, at issue, which is the Westboro Baptist Church protesting the, uh, the, the funeral of the, the dead soldier, the speech is so offensive that as a, you know, a, a First Amendment, uh, anybody who's read First Amendment case law, you think, oh, okay, this is supremely offensive speech. I'm going to put it in the protected bucket because I know this First Amendment protects supremely offensive speech. It's the speech that is kind of like, you know, F cheer, well, sometimes, you know, especially in the in the school context, you know, you can see people saying this is not quite as offensive as it needs to be to get clear First Amendment protection, if that makes sense. Right. Like it's there's something about uh, extremely offensive speech that I think people say, well, wait a second, the First Amendment kicks in here. It's the it's the middling ground. Right. <laughs> especially the personal speech that I think judges uh, can struggle with. So we'll, we'll see. Well, you know, my, my last question is 
kind of along the lines of, is there any jurisdiction that's gotten it right? You know, social media mm-hmm. and its power to connect students is very much a toothpaste out of the tube situation. It's not going away. And so what do you think the rule should be, uh, particularly, you know, as, as we just talked about, uh, the justices are informed by their own personal perspectives. And you just shared how, you know, you've got a, a child in kindergarten now. You've got a, uh, you know, and who's the... Uh, child of a First Amendment uh, attorney, and so who's obviously going to be in view with your perspectives growing up um, and could very well find him or herself in the school's crosshairs in high school um, for speech that, you know, the school might not be uh, so fond of. And so, you know, what do you think the rule should be? You know, I'm sure that you are just as interested as, as all other parents are in having school support and raising good kids and, and good stewards uh, and being uh, good members of the community. So what online and off-campus speech should schools have the power to discipline? And do you see any danger in such a rule? Yeah, I will tell you that as a first amendment attorney, I'm often mindful as to what uh, my kids are hearing. Uh, you know, I, 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 worry, I worry very much uh, about uh, getting too comfortable describing cases now that he's old enough to uh, retain these descriptions uh, and having him test out the rules of the road <laughs> during his day job. Um, I, I feel very comfortable with uh, the rule as we argue for it in our brief uh, and the rule is announced by the Third Circuit that Tinker uh, is not the proper uh, framework for analyzing off-campus speech. I just think there's so much of Tinker, uh, the breadth of the uh, uh, prescriptions on speech, uh, the breadth of authority granted to school administrators, that it makes good sense in, in school activities or in school, uh, but is a very poor tool uh, for assessing uh, off-campus speech or online speech. In fact, there's a number of cases that we cite in our, or examples that we cite in our brief of schools getting tinker wrong, even when uh, they're dealing with uh, on-campus speech, whether it's school uh, students wearing t-shirts, um, you know, or wearing all black uh, to support Black Lives Matter and still being disciplined for posting a picture of themselves doing so on Snapchat, or uh, as I alluded to earlier, the student taking the picture of the dirty water at her school, the students who uh, were disciplined for uh, taking pictures of the crowded hallways in Georgia, of their high school in Georgia, uh, after uh, the COVID reopening, uh, where crowded hallways, students not wearing masks, and, and students are given uh, five-day suspensions for taking pictures of, of that scene uh, and uploading it. So what I would like is a rule that teaches students uh, that the First Amendment is not something to be feared. The First Amendment protects speech that we don't, you know, we don't like or don't condone or don't agree with. But the First Amendment is a necessary check on government power. And you do have the right to stand up and criticize even your school. Uh, You do have the right to vent off campus. You do have the right uh, to have a sanctuary uh, for expressing your First Amendment rights without the long arm of the school watching you. I would be much more worried about my son uh, and his long-term development Uh, if he grew up in a space where he thought that even when he came home, uh, that what he said and did might uh, subject him to punishment uh, at school. I think that that is an unhealthy uh, way to raise children. I think raising children in a surveillance state uh, will uh, incur long-term damage to our democracy and long-term suspicion. There's a case from the uh, 
uh, a higher ed context uh, where the Supreme Court says uh, scholarship cannot flourish in an atmosphere of suspicion and distrust. And they're talking about uh, McCarthy era blacklist for communists. But I think that same rationale can be applied to high school students. When we're inculcating students with the values of our democracy, one of those values is liberty, freedom of speech, and uh, individual rights. And I think it's really important to uh, demonstrate to students that we mean that, uh, particularly in the high school age, uh, by practicing it, by you know making that bargain. Yes, you'll hear speech you don't like, that's part of the bargain for living in our pluralistic democracy. You also have the right to call it out. I think that's an important lesson. And the earlier students get that, the better. It doesn't, you know, I don't think properly construed, I don't think that uh, infringes upon or, or uh, harms the school's ability to discipline speech that isn't protected by the First Amendment, discipline harassment and bullying, maintain school order. I think you can do all of those things. What I'm worried about is schools uh, teaching students the wrong lesson about life in a democracy. Uh, by telling them essentially that the First Amendment is illusory, that it sounds nice, but really if you say the wrong thing and the school sees it, you're going to be punished. I don't like that rule, and I think that's dangerous. Well said. and Fair enough. And I, 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 as a fellow parent myself, I, I share those concerns, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with uh, I am certainly glad that I didn't go to high school or any grade with the social media and the internet. I, I got the internet at 17, and Facebook didn't exist. None of it existed. So I, I feel lucky to, <laughs> didn't have to deal with it. And You and me both, Matt. I think being a teenager is, is hard enough. Uh, I, I'm just the same way. I remember getting in, in trouble um, in seventh grade where I was uh, you know, the, the vice president of the student council for telling students that they should disregard a rule. So I, I'm sympathetic to this. And I didn't say that on Snapchat. You know, I didn't, that was me in real time uh, on, on campus. And so you know, I, I've often felt grateful for the fact that, like you, I grew up uh, before social media was around. And I, I, I think that the fact that we both feel grateful in that way should tell us something about the, uh, the stakes of the case. Absolutely. And, and, and also the, the factual murkiness of it and, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, the practical implications of it. This, this, is, this is tough. And, and, and again, I come back to, I think this is where the younger justices perspective is going to be really critical who are going to be able to be in the room and the clerks too, as you correctly point out, who are going to be able to be in the room and say, sure, that might sound, you know, that I might agree with one side of this argument or the other in the abstract, but here's how it can really play out. And here are the pros and cons. So I would definitely love to be a fly on the wall. Will Crilly, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reiner. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.